today I'm Sexually Woke with Dr. Susan. We're reposting an old episode from March of 2020 that I thought was so important it was worth revisiting. We're talking about codependence. What is it? How do I know if I have it? And how can we get rid of it to have healthier relationships? Hi, and thanks for joining me on this week's episode of Sexually Woke with me, Dr. Susan. And this week, we're reposting an old episode that I thought was really important to look at again. We're talking about codependence, such a toxic way to destroy relationships, and how do we get out of it so we can have more healthy, intimate relationships. I hope you enjoy it. I'm guessing you've heard this word quite a bit. It's thrown around in various ways and frequently misused and misunderstood. So I'd like to give you a little bit of uh, context around it in the way that I understand it and tell you how it's been really helpful uh, for my husband and I to understand to move towards a healthy relationship. Once we understand what codependence is, you'll understand immediately how it's an absolute deal breaker for a healthy relationship. And if we want to have healthy relationships, we've really got to analyze where we're codependent, because we all are, and then how to get out of that hamster wheel and move towards something a little bit healthier. So an author named Melody Beattie wrote a very well-known book called Codependence No More. If you're interested in this topic, I would definitely ask you to check it out. And I don't have the book in front of me to read it, but I recall her description was something like this, that codependence is present in any relationship where one person is really almost obsessed with the other person and a need to control or change them. So looking at my own life, that obviously comes up quite a bit. So I did not realize that I was a codependent person until I read her book. But I think that all of us can see a little bit of that in many of our relationships. So historically, the term codependence was used in the context of addiction. Uh, So a classic example would be where if an alcoholic husband, say, for example, was enabled by his wife to continue to be alcoholic. So putting it very simply, in order to keep the relationship together, she might, for example, hide the fact that he's alcoholic or even um, buy his alcohol for him to prevent him from getting angry or in some way uh, enabling the addiction to continue. So when the term was initially applied to addiction, you could see how both members of that uh, couple were dependent on the alcohol to keep the relationship together. Neither one of the members of that couple were doing what needed to be done to get out of that unhealthy cycle. So it also was used to uh, refer to similar type of unhealthy relationships with mental illness, where families, and I came from a family with mental illness, uh, families would revolve themselves around the person who was mentally ill, and even do things that would encourage them to continue their unhealthy behaviors. Uh, In my family, mother had mental illness, and the whole family was constantly on edge about trying to make things so that she wouldn't get upset. None of us were really trying to help her to be better. We were just enabling the situation to continue exactly as it was. So that's sort of the historical way that the term was used. But in uh, modern psychology or in kind of uh, urban language, uh, people talk about codependence in a much more broad context, which I actually find much more useful because I can see how it applies to me and to really everyone that I know. So 
when we have two people that come together in a, this is usually talking about a primary romantic relationship. So I'm going to just focus on that particular relationship, even though codependence does apply to whole families. In a primary romantic relationship, if you look at the movies or, you know, read a romance book, a couple comes together and they're like, oh, I found this other half to complete me. You know, I, I need you to make me whole. And there's a whole litany of books and songs and poems and, you know, the jewelry with the half a heart and you put it together. All of this is in our culture suggesting that without another person, we're not complete or that we need someone to complete us. So, you know, we come together, we fall in love. It's amazing. That's happened to me several times uh, when my husband and I fell in love. We were so codependent. <laughs> we got to a point when we were first dating where we couldn't be apart for more than a few hours without feeling sick. I mean, it was very, very unhealthy. It was a lot of fun. Um, but luckily, those initial romance weeks or months don't usually last forever. In fact, it's very rare for them to last more than six to 12 months because it's just not sustainable. We find out that the other person, in fact, is not perfect and they do something to disappoint us. And then either the relationship falls apart or we're able to evolve to a higher level of relationship that can be more sustainable. So what's wrong with being in love and needing somebody? Well, nothing really. Um, it's a lot of fun. The unhealthy part comes with us giving our power away to another person to be responsible for our happiness. So whenever we're giving our power away to another person to be responsible for our happiness, we're putting ourselves in a really precarious position for obvious reasons. What if they leave? <laughs> what if they go away for a couple of days? So in uh, the context of my relationship, or maybe yours, uh, when you, you remember that first kind of falling in love stage, I needed him, using Melody Beattie's definition, to be a certain way. I didn't need to change him so much as I needed him to stay exactly that perfect way that he was when I met him. And as long as he did that, then everything was okay. So going back to her definition of being kind of obsessed with somebody and wanting them to change or to control them. Absolutely. We were both extraordinarily codependent in that way. He needed me to be the same way that I was when we met and vice versa in order for this, you know, fantastic romance to continue. Well, guess what? It didn't. Now, <laughs> we've been together for five years and we've reached a little bit of a higher level of evolution. So very rarely do we get stuck in that initial romance codependent state. But as we get further into the relationship, once we realize that our partner's not perfect, we can start wanting to control them. Now, they don't have to be an alcoholic or have mental illness. Again, I don't mind sharing my life with you. Uh, my husband and I, as we spent more time together, I had the brilliant idea that he should retire. He had a corporate job that he was sort of tired of, and he had a lot of other interests. He's a painter and has all kinds of other fabulous hobbies. So I said, great, why don't you retire? And that sounds wonderful. Nothing wrong with that, except that subconsciously, I wanted him to retire so that I could be in control of the finances because I like that. I wanted him to retire so I could spend more time with him. So I like that too. And I, I kind of like being in charge. So it took me a few years to figure that out. But he wasn't privy to this subconscious plan of mine. And honestly, I wasn't either because it was subconscious. But the relationship became you know, really unhealthy around this control issue. So in our situation, I set things up so that I could be in control 
and I needed him to behave a certain way in order for us to be happy. So you can kind of see how that works and everybody's got their different flavor of how this might work in their own relationship. Now we were able to get past that, you know, because relationships happen in stages. And uh, actually, I highly recommend reading the book that I mentioned, Codependent No More, because we were able to see some of those patterns and then change them. So if you're in a relationship where somebody is controlling the other and there's an imbalance of power in any way, financial, not, not to say that you have to make the same amount of money, I mean, it's admirable to stay home as a man or woman and take care of the kids, but the power doesn't have to rely on the money itself. But if there's an imbalance of power so that somebody's making all the decisions or somebody's having power over another, certainly physically, or any imbalance where one person's you know, true nature isn't valued as high as the other, would definitely classify that as an unhealthy codependent relationship and put some thought into looking at how those patterns might need to change in order to create more happiness and harmony. So in imbalanced relationships, it's very, very rare that both parties are happy with that situation. So taking a little bit further, uh, one of my favorite topics is the drama triangle. So I'm going to talk to you about the drama triangle. It was originally invented, so to speak, by a guy named Stephen Cartman in the 1960s. And uh, the drama triangle really describes codependence beautifully. And uh, we actually use uh, the drama triangle at work and uh, in my coaching because it's such a cool model. And I hope you'll agree when I explain how it works. So codependence is sometimes described as relationship addiction or drama addiction. So another way to spot a codependent relationship is if there's lots of drama. You know, drama can be delicious, juicy and full of adrenaline and, you know, the big arguments and the makeup sucks and the, the passion and the fire, right? That's all drama. And it's fun at first, but ultimately dramatic relationships usually end in a pretty fiery way and certainly don't lead to long-term happiness for anybody. So Melody Beattie, who wrote this famous book that I love, described how codependent relationships operate in terms of this drama triangle. So the triangle has three parts, obviously. One is uh, the victim, one is the villain or the persecutor, and one is the hero. So in any drama, we're playing at least one of those roles, victim, villain, or hero. If you are in a drama triangle, you're in an unhealthy relationship. We all spend much of our day in a drama triangle. I know I do. <laughs> I've studied it so much that I can see it when it's happening and name it, but it doesn't mean it stops happening. It just means that we can have awareness of when we're slipping down into a drama triangle and acting from a less evolved state and then shift to a different way of being that's more healthy. Let me give you an example. A victim is always going to think that the world is happening to them. So the victim is like, poor me. He did this to me. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. Uh, what am I going to do? Uh, so this is a very common stance that we might take in a relationship. And interestingly, it's not just women who uh, play the victim role. Men can do it very well too. Now you can have one foot on more than one square in the triangle. For example, a spouse of a alcoholic might play in the victim role for quite a while. It's not my fault. You know, I, I, I wish he was different, but I can't do anything because this is just happening. And might also flip over to either the villain or the hero. Now, the villain, we know when we're being a villain because we're blaming someone. Can't believe he did that. That's not, you know, they did this. It's somebody's fault. Someone's to blame. 
could be me too. I'm to blame. It's my fault. Uh, so a villain is blaming someone outsider. I can be all three in one sentence. So you can hop around the triangle and actually do this at work where we literally put the triangles on the floor and hop around while we're talking. Now, the wife of an alcoholic could also very easily be a hero. Now, a hero is someone who's going to try to solve the problem, but in a temporary way just to make themselves feel better. So a hero is not doing anything evolved or heroic. It's actually a um, unhealthy behavior to be in hero mode because you're saving the day without actually solving the underlying problem. And just it's like giving candy to a crying baby. That would be a good example of a hero. You're not solving a long-term problem. You're just putting out a little fire. And the goal of the hero is to make themselves feel better. I can't stand you crying anymore, so I'm going to give you some candy. It's got nothing to do with... I want the baby to be happy because candy probably wouldn't be a good choice long term. I've given candy to my baby, so no judgment. But whenever we're trying to create a quick fix that is not doing anything but making ourselves feel better, we're in hero mode. So victim, villain, hero, drama. Whenever we're in playing one of those roles or casting another person in one of those roles, we're in a drama triangle. Now, the goal is to step outside of the drama triangle and to disidentify with those various roles, which are not real. They're like shirts that you put on somebody. They're not who they really are. And if we look into our stories behind that, we usually find out that the stories are actually not true. Whenever you're in a fight with your partner or spouse, you might find that frequently there's a lot of blame. Well, you did this. Um, it wasn't my fault. You didn't take out the trash. I'm being a villain. You should have done that. It wasn't my fault. This is how now I'm a victim. This didn't happen to me. So I just went ahead and did it for you. Now I'm a hero. So you can see in one sentence, you could be in all three of those. But that pattern of behavior is not leading us towards peace and harmony. So stepping outside of blame, that stepping outside of the villain role, stepping outside of the quick fix that doesn't solve anything, just makes ourselves feel better for a minute. A really common way to hero ourselves is with alcohol, chocolate, exercise, <laughs> all of our numbing agents. We all have one. Quick fix, it doesn't solve the problem. Or if we're in victim mode where, oh, poor me, this shouldn't happen. This isn't my fault. So getting familiar with those three characters and how we cast those on ourselves personally and on others is really fun, first of all, and really useful. So if you introduce that language, I would just invite you to maybe introduce that language into your family conversation and just sort of make that part of your family culture. It can be really interesting. My kids know about the drama triangle. So when somebody's, I have twins, like she did this to me, you know, we can just say, oh, victim, villain, you know, and I, it can be a really fun way to just break through that unhealthy behavior and invite a shift to a healthier way to deal with the same situation. So coming back to codependence, the drama triangle is all about codependence, because we're going back to the definition that I mentioned earlier, we're trying to control or change another person's behavior in order to create happiness for ourselves. So just reflecting on that again, like whenever we're needing somebody else to be different in order for us to be happy, we're really setting ourselves up in a precarious position. That's never going to work. So, you know, the old idea that happiness comes from the inside, I mean, it's such a cliche that sometimes we gloss over it, but it's really important in this context, I think, to understand that 
as much as we outsource, that means give to someone else, our security or our approval or our comfort, our happiness, we're always in a precarious position because it could be taken away. So when I'm trying to change my husband or I need him to be different in order for me to be happy, I immediately see that I'm getting in trouble. Well, maybe not immediately. Maybe the next day after we've had a big fight and I'm like, oh God, I did that again. That happens a lot, you know, because we've got these old habits and, you know, 50 plus years of doing the same thing. It's not easy to unwind, but it's a practice. So yeah, maybe you don't notice until the next day. You had a big fight, blamed each other, got all on the drama triangle. And then the next day I wake up with a drama triangle hangover, like, oh, God, I can't believe I did that again. I teach this at work and I just did it myself. The gap between doing that stupid thing and realizing that you did it and making a U-turn to something more healthy just gets shorter. I mean, I used to be able to be resentful and angry for years, like 20 years (laughs) without stopping. And now I can maybe sometimes even catch it in the instant and turn it around before it even happens or at least the next day. So I'm not enlightened, believe me. As we get more practiced at these skills, and these are skills that, first of all, being aware of when these things are coming up, and then secondly, being able to do a U-turn and just say, you know, we're in the drama triangle, let's take a break and come back together when we can talk in a more helpful way that's going to lead to peace and harmony, totally change your relationship. Now, if if you are in a situation where uh, drugs or alcohol or mental illness are involved, absolutely, you're going to need help. It's not something that anyone can deal with on their own. Lots of resources out there. Uh, But do, you know, it's really important to recognize that with addiction, mental illness, it's almost impossible to have a healthy relationship or I may throw out there, it's just impossible without help uh, because we're constantly needing that person to change and be different in order to make us happy. So my invitation to you is to consider how much you're outsourcing or giving away your power, security, control, happiness to another party, because usually it's a primary romantic relationship. In as much as you're doing that, you're setting yourself up for unhappiness. So easy to say to stop, just stop it. Don't do that anymore. Much harder to do, but it's a process. And I just invite you to think about whether this is uh, something that comes up in your life and how it comes up. You can have codependent relationships with your kids. Uh, For sure, I do. An example would be When they get good grades, I feel happy. And when they, well, my kids never get bad grades, but hypothetically, if they did, I would feel responsible for that. Like their school grades have an effect on my inner happiness. And I need that to be different. I need them to get good grades in order for me to feel good. Recognizing that and bringing it into the light is uh, really helpful so that we can change those patterns and realize that our kids, our spouse, our dog are not the source of our happiness. We need to stop outsourcing happiness and bring it back inside because that's really the only place that we can control it. So love to hear your thoughts about that. Uh, This was a little bit of a new spin on an old term, codependence. And um, love to hear how that shows up in your life. You can connect with me on drsusan.com. And I look forward to seeing you next week. 